Hello and welcome to the Conflict Skills Podcast. I'm your host, professional mediator Simon Good. In today's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at the topic of de-escalation, how you can help somebody else to calm down when they're in a very worked up state. The purpose of this podcast is to help you develop the confidence and skills to deal with conflict effectively and knowing how to help somebody to regulate their emotions when they're sitting there quite unregulated is incredibly important. It reduces the time that you need to spend dealing with difficult conversations. It often means that you can shift to a solution or start to generate options quicker. And it also might mean that you don't end up copying so much abuse and (laughs) negative behaviors from the other person if you can help them to calm down. It doesn't often take very long. It's typically within the space of about five minutes, I think, even when I'm dealing with a complaint with someone that I've never met and at the beginning of the conversation, they're really angry. Now, in terms of the larger conflict resolution toolkit in training that I run, I talk about conflict assessment, self-regulation, de-escalation, active listening and assertiveness strategies as well. In terms of de-escalation, it really has to sit before the problem solving. A mistake that people sometimes can make is that they jump straight into coming up with options, thinking about next steps, looking at possible solutions when the other person isn't ready. And when I say they're not ready to think about options or solutions, I mean in the physical sense. If we scan people's brains using an MRI machine, when people are in a very escalated state, the fight or flight response has kicked in, they literally have less capacity to access the logical rational sections of their brain than when they're very calm. When we're in fight or flight, all of our focus and energy is directed to short-term survival. And if someone feels like their ego is at stake, they're embarrassed and ashamed, or they're worried about not getting an outcome that they're hoping for or from an argument, it can sometimes trigger that stress response, that fight or flight response. So all of their focus is on short-term survival. So they're not thinking clearly. They're not understanding what you're telling them correctly. They're not considering the consequences of their behavior. And when someone's in that state, it's very unlikely that you'll be able to get to a productive place in the conversation if you're not able to help them to calm down. So in the podcast today, I'll explain the fight or flight response, what that looks like, what happens in terms of our body and our brain, which then gives us information about the kinds of things that can trigger people and push their buttons, as well as the kind of factors that people crave when they're escalated and the kinds of things that can help someone to You know, things aren't as urgent or risky or dangerous or imminent as it might feel in the moment. I'll talk about how you should speak, how you should sit or stand, moving your body. And then we can apply these different tools depending on whether we're dealing with someone face-to-face or it's on the phone. might be a little bit different whether it's someone we know or we're delivering bad news as opposed to just receiving a complaint and then we need to go and investigate as a possible next step. Thank you very much for listening, and I really hope that the episode of the podcast today is helpful. Let's get into the topic. So let's first think about the fight or flight response. This is a universal human experience. 
often triggered by external events. We see or hear something and we think that it's a threat. So our body and our mind go into this fight or flight mode. And the goal, the reason why we're designed this way is really to keep us safe. If we think about thousands and thousands of years of human evolution, the goal has been to survive. So any threats that we needed to come across, we had to respond in a way that kept us safe. And if we think about our ancestors, humans living a thousand years ago, most of the threats that they faced were physical. Things like, I don't know, you're out and about and you see a stranger from a neighboring tribe and they might want to attack you or you come across a wild animal like a bear. And so we've got this response, fight or flight, which is really good for dealing with bears. I'll, I'll fight the bear or I'll run away. The problem is that we've evolved this, and so our brain and our body have become very good at dealing with bears. We have a single possible response to a whole bunch of different threats. So the problem for modern humans, like you and I, is that we have our fight or flight response get triggered for non-physical threats. Things like being embarrassed, feeling like your six-year-old's not respecting you when you've asked them to put their shoes on so that you can get in the car about 18 times, your boss being unreasonable, dealing with a client who's very aggressive, being publicly shamed, having to give a public speech, for example. These are all situations that can trigger that fight or flight response. And that's not ideal. If I'm going for a job interview, I don't really want to get ready to fight the interview panel <laughs> or run away halfway through if things aren't on track. But that's what my body is getting me ready for. It's action, fight or flight. All of this fight or flight response is about getting ready for action. And a number of changes happen in our body. Uh, adrenaline is released, liver releases glucose, cortisol, which is the stress hormone that our brain creates, uh, increases, which has an effect on blood pressure and blood sugar, memory and attention, the immune system, digestion slows. It's basically the body diverting resources to short-term action rather than longer-term health or balance. So people who are in chronic stress jobs, for example, or family situations, often find that their immune system becomes compromised because their body was effectively taking resources from longer-term health and balance towards short-term survival. So they're all internal effects, and then you might notice some things happening in your body as well. Our pupils dilate, we might almost get tunnel vision, we tend to lose awareness of what's in our periphery. Our mouth goes dry, our heartbeat increases, you might notice muscles getting tense and tight in your back or neck or shoulders. Some people sweat, you might need to go to the toilet a lot or can't go to the toilet. Difficult to catch your breath, you sort of feel like you're breathing fast and very shallowly. And of course, all of this means that our body is such a worked up state that it can be really difficult then to sleep or to concentrate just because we've got such a high level of activity happening for us physically. So that's what happens in the body of someone who's escalated. You might notice some of these things, but maybe it's just the tip of the iceberg symptoms like they're raising their voice, they're pacing back and forth, they might be clenching their fists, uh, eyes darting back and forth. All of these things are a sign of that buildup of adrenaline that might be happening. And along with these physical effects, there are also a number of changes that happen in our brain. If you think about the brain as having an upper section and a lower section, the upper section 
sort of in behind our forehead. That part of the brain is called the cortex. The middle front section in sort of in behind your eyebrows is called the prefrontal cortex. This is the uniquely human section of the brain. And that part is important for things like decision making. We process complex information. Uh, It's basically where we think rationally and logically. We consider the consequences of our behavior. We look through options and then make a decision. All in this very I guess to some extent thought out way. The lower section of the brain, by contrast, is more closely connected to survival and thus that fight or flight response. There's an almond-shaped section of the brain called the amygdala that's very closely connected to our senses. So when we see or hear something and the information comes in, the amygdala's job is to almost filter for threat And if it thinks that there's a threat, therefore we might not be safe, the amygdala triggers that fight or flight response with all of those flow and effects in our body. Connected to that is what's called the limbic system, which is basically the emotional section of our brain. If we're feeling very strong emotions, anger, happiness, surprise, disgust, frustration, (laughs) disappointment, then that would be the part of the brain where all of the activity is happening. That limbic system, the emotional part of the brain, sits very closely connected to the amygdala, the part that triggers the fight or flight response. Which means that when you're in conflict, a lot of the time as people start to get worked up, they also experience accompanying strong emotions. Often it's fear or anger. When we look at someone's brain and they're in fight or flight mode, what we would see is that all of the activities happening in that lower section of the brain, there's very little activity happening in the rational, logical part of the brain because their brain is getting ready for short-term survival. It's not interested in the consequence of taking a particular course of action. It just wants to escape this immediate threat. So when you're dealing with someone who's in fight or flight mode, it can almost be like they can't hear what you're saying to them, like it doesn't register. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of talking to someone and they're so worked up, they almost can't seem to hear what you're saying or they'll misinterpret what you've told them or just focus on a section of what you've said. These are all signs of that rational, logical part of the person's brain not fully functioning. And in the conflict resolution training that I run, de-escalation skills is an important part of it and it has to come before the active listening assertiveness problem solving we want in conflict to find a way to shift the conversation towards the future and the solutions but we can't do that before we've de-escalated someone if we do it will mean that that rational bit of their brain is not fully functioning and it's likely then that whatever solutions or options that we come up with, however we explain the situation to the other person, there'll be a lack of capacity to understand what we're saying and thus a lack of buy-in with any potential plan that you come up with. So that's the sort of broad level physiology and neurobiology of the fight or flight response, particularly how it relates to conflict. I just wanted to talk briefly about something called conditioning. If we think about feelings. We might feel angry, frustrated, disappointed, exhausted, having to deal with this person for such a long period of time. Those feelings often come about as a connection to our thoughts, the the story that we tell ourselves about a situation and behaviors, which means that if you'd like to feel differently, we've got two different levers that we can consider. We could do something differently, go for a walk, do some exercise, have something to eat, take a time out, do some deep breathing. They will make us feel different. We won't feel as distressed, for example. Or we can think about 
adjusting our thinking? Are we catastrophizing what's going on? Maybe there's more help than we realize. Maybe this problem isn't something that I need to respond to. It's not my job to make everybody happy. That might also make us feel differently. The thing is that we learn, we learn how to feel when a particular thing happens. The process of conditioning is basically where we start to connect our reaction to a trigger. The classic example is Pavlov's dog. If he would ring the bell every time he gave the dog a meal, then he would ring the bell and the dog would start to salivate because it connected getting a meal with the bell. This also happens at a subconscious level to humans. If the last time we had an interaction with our boss, they became incredibly aggressive and we ended up basically having to leave for fear of the situation just getting worse and worse, the next time we walk into the boss's office, we'll start to have a subconscious reaction to that. Our body is priming us, getting ready for a feeling, which means that it won't take as much for, I guess, us to flip into fight or flight mode and for the rational part of our own brain to start to have less and less control and input into the situation. So it's worth realizing this, that your reaction to the situation is really about the past. It's really about previous experiences and uh, I guess things that have happened to you. And that's also true for the person that you're dealing with. So although I've explained that de-escalation, it's the brain and the body, we perceive something as triggering threat. And therefore, one of the things that I'll talk about next is how we can establish a sense of safety. I'm not saying that the person logically thinks that you're going to attack them. If you're a manager and you're talking to a staff and giving negative feedback, it's pretty common for that person to slip into fight or flight mode. And it's not because what you've done is dangerous. You're not intending to threaten them. They make meaning from what you say and what you do, not just based on who you are and your intentions and what they know and the facts at hand, but also based on their conditioning. All of the past experiences that they've had, how they've been taught to deal with stress, the role models that they've had, who they're mirroring and subconsciously replicating through these processes of learning to adapt to the world that we live in. So sometimes you might need to set aside what should happen or what's right and even if the person's being unreasonable, so to speak, you might still take an empathetic and, I guess, understanding approach to why they're in that escalated state and remind yourself that their reaction is not just all about you and what you've said and what you've done. There'll be a whole bunch of things being stirred up for them and for you, by the way, at a subconscious level that they're not even aware of. And if we leave those things go unaddressed, it means that we're not able to de-escalate someone as effectively. So I mentioned that it's not just physical threats that tend to trigger this fight or flight response. There are other things as well. And sometimes when I'm doing training, people ask me, well, you know, Simon, what, how do I know what's going to trigger someone? What's likely to push their buttons? The challenge is that we've all got a different set of factors that tend to upset us <laughs> and they change over time. If you're very hungry, you might start to become hangry. I'm thinking a little bit about my wife and other family members that I have to deal with on a daily basis. And if they're 
waiting for dinner, there's a whole lot of extra triggers that I need to navigate versus if they're well-fed and content and we're just watching TV together. So triggers can change, they're unique to people and sometimes they're different across contexts. But the two things that tend to trigger us are pain and uncertainty. These are things that we tend to feel, fear. These are things that feel incredibly uncomfortable when we're dealing with them and they tend to escalate us into that fight or flight response, even if we don't realize it. So when I say pain, it's not just physical pain, it's things like social pain, being embarrassed, being exposed, having something that you've done wrong be made public, someone calling you out on it. It might be things like not feeling understood, someone accusing you of something, and that's really unfair because you'd actually been trying to be generous and actually doing something that was good, it just went wrong and now they think that you deliberately did it, for example. It might be grief. The loss of relationships can also cause pain. It might be worrying about financial pain and stress, like not being able to afford something that's important to you at a fundamental level, like having a safe place to live, having enough food to eat, that kind of thing. So pain can trigger the fight or flight response. And the other thing that often triggers us is uncertainty. The reason that kids are afraid of the dark is because, gosh, who knows what kind of monsters might be lurking there. And when people aren't sure what to expect, it tends to make them more likely to go into a fight or flight response. At the beginning of my mediation sessions, I often walk very specifically through the structure that we'll use for today even including the timing of breaks and where toilets are located and what they can do while the other person's speaking and what they can expect from me, when I'm going to jump in, when I might let things go. And my goal there is not just to keep things on track, it's to give them that sense of being sure-footed. When we feel like we're standing on solid ground, it tends to mean that we can deal with things that are coming up or where we're at at the moment. In change, good leaders are often very specific about which changes are coming, how it will impact each person, when to expect them, what they know, what they don't know, what the people can do in the meantime, which often means that the threat all of a sudden becomes tangible. If we're specific about what's going to happen and maybe what we're worried about, it tends to mean that we can take a proactive approach, whereas if we're not sure how something will play out, Maybe an organization announces a massive sweeping restructure, but they haven't provided the details yet. Everyone will probably be sitting there at a 5 out of 10 level of stress, 6 out of 10 level of stress. And then once they know the specifics of how things will play out, the timeframes involved, you would often see a, a lower level of stress being encountered amongst the members of the group. So the first thing that you can often do in de-escalation is removing those triggers. If the pain that the person is experiencing is that they're um, not feeling listened to and feeling heard, then organize a meeting with a senior person to go through it or offer to them to talk through it in detail and give them the sense that this is important to you. If the person is incredibly upset about a product that they've purchased, saying to them, look, there are some situations where we can offer a refund or a replacement. Could you talk to me a bit more about what's going on and I can explain options? Even just flagging at the outset that there's something that I can do to remedy this problem might mean that they start to feel more optimistic and I guess more willing to be flexible and collaborate on potential solutions. 
In terms of removing uncertainty, it's usually about talking very clearly about next steps, who will do what, when this will happen, when you'll get back to the person by, that kind of thing. If you're not able to remove the pain and uncertainty, then the next best option is to name it. When we acknowledge something, it tends to mean that the other person feels understood, they have that sense of connection, even if it's not something that we can change, which might mean that they stop repeating themselves and telling you about it again and again, and also reduce the emotional intensity with which they're regarding that. So if someone feels like the... I don't know, you've been negligent in your safety guidelines in a particular product or service, saying to them, look, it it sounds like to you safety is something that's really important and part of the reason why you're so disappointed with the product that you've purchased isn't just the risk to you, it's the thought of how this might affect other families in Australia. So let's turn then to some of the techniques that we can use during a difficult conversation to help de-escalate someone. I've broken these down into three different categories. Uh, First, how you speak, how you should talk, what kind of tone of voice, etc. is helpful. Second, body language, what you say, what you do, how you sit, how you stand, how far apart you are, that kind of thing. And third, the what. What kinds of things can you say? Which kind of phrases can be helpful? What kind of things can you offer? So let's start with speech. There's a really good book I like by a guy called Chris Voss. The book is called Never Split the Difference. And Chris Voss was an FBI hostage negotiator. And one of the things he talks about is what he calls the late night DJ voice. That easy listening classics, easy listening FM. Okay, that last track was from Simon called Where is the Weekend Gone? Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's nearly Monday. There are three elements to this tone of voice. Low volume, lower tone slower speed. With all of these things, of course, if you speak completely really slowly or too low and monotone, it will come across as inauthentic, which might make the other person feel like you're not taking what they're saying seriously. So we need to find a balance, but generally quieter, generally a lower tone. When I talk like this, it tends to escalate people, so I'd talk much more like my natural, I guess, speaking voice or the voice that I've learnt to use as a mediator. So lower volume, lower tone and slower speed, maybe allowing more pauses and especially at the beginning of the conversation, being very careful not to interrupt the other person. If I'm listening to myself, sometimes I um, videotape my mediation sessions to use in clinical supervision to get feedback about how I can improve dynamics that I might not be picking up on, etc. One of the things that I often notice is that, you know, I'd wish I'd waited just a little bit longer before speaking because I think the other person might have kept talking and it would have been a much more organic way to listen rather than jumping in with another question. When it's question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, people talk very quickly. It tends to almost create this sense of being a little bit frenetic or frantic. It increases the perceived energy and tension in the room or in the conversation, which tends to escalate people. So that's the first thing to think about is how do you speak? If you've got a naturally higher tone of voice, that would be something you need to do quite deliberately. If you've got a loud, booming type of voice, you might need to practice being a little bit quieter. The second thing that we should think about is what do we do with our body? When we point at people, if we cross our arms, it tends to cause people to get more upset. It would be unique. Some people wouldn't care at all. Others would get very quickly upset. But it's something that increases the chances of someone being escalated. So we don't want to do those kinds of behaviors. 
Generally speaking, a relaxed posture is helpful. Leaning back in your chair, don't lean too far forward because we don't want to increase that sense of pressure on the other person. So lean back, lower your shoulders, keep your arms by your side with your palms open, not don't have your hands clenched. If you're too nervous, your hands are shaking because you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, put your hands in your pocket or behind your back or under the table. But broadly speaking, I would want my hands and my palms, if possible, to be visible, my arms to be by my side, reasonably relaxed. I would ideally sit. I might say to the person, gosh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that's been your experience. I, I wonder if you'd be willing to tell me a bit more about it. Could we go and have a seat over here and maybe you can fill me in on what's happened until that point or what you'd like moving forward? Sitting down tends to make people calm down a little bit and absolutely in all situations I don't want to be standing over the top of someone else. That'll be something that causes them to obviously feel that sense of an imbalance of power and escalate that fight or flight response. In terms of eye contact, communication psychologists roughly have suggested around 70%, although it's something that's culturally nuanced, but you want to find the balance between too much eye contact or too little. You probably don't want, if your goal is de-escalation, to be taking too many notes, typing on a computer, looking at your phone. They would all create the sense of a lack of connection and maybe at a subconscious level the might the person might feel like you're not taking them seriously or not giving them enough focus and then in terms of distance roughly one and a half meters apart two arms length tends to be a general guideline that works in most cultures sometimes in rural and regional areas even in australia people prefer to stand further apart and then city or metro areas tend to be closer i know some asian countries have different norms around standing very close just because there's more people packed into a smaller area but the key here is find something that's comfortable for both of you but probably predominantly them and don't move towards or away from them both of those can tend to trigger subconsciously that fight or flight response. So we want to think about our tone of voice, think about our body language, how we're sitting, standing, all with the goal of creating that sense of safety, removing any subconscious perceived threats that might be going on in the conversation. The third thing that we want to think about is the what. What do we actually say? What do we offer? What do we organize? There's five different things, generally speaking, that people crave when they're in an escalated state. They are status, control, clarity, connection, and fairness. So number one, status, two, control, three, clarity, four, connection, and five, fairness. Status is just giving them that sense of feeling important. So you might say something like, gosh, as soon as I got your email, I wanted to give you a call. Uh, I'm so sorry that that's been your experience. I wanted to get in touch and find some way to resolve it as soon as we can. So you might say something like, I've called you as quickly as I could, or I've escalated this to a senior person because I'm taking what you're saying seriously. You might say, I want to make sure we've got enough time to talk through what we need to. Um, would tomorrow morning be okay if, if I give you a call around 9.30? D does that work for you? As much as possible, we want to give them the sense that we're doing what we can. We're acknowledging the severity of the problem on their end. Whether or not we agree with it and whether or not we intend to offer anything, at the beginning, we want to give them the sense that they matter. The second thing that we would do is give the person a sense of control. 
I don't want to come through and say, I can get a replacement organized and sent out to you. Give me your address and I'll get that done. It would be better to say, look, I, I can actually organize a replacement. Would you like us to get that in the mail for you today? If they make the decision, yes or no, they tend to feel more in control. This is especially important at the beginning of conversations. In mediation, I often say something like, look, before we get started, do either of you want to take a quick break to grab a glass of water? Um, do you need to duck to the bathroom or just take a moment to settle yourselves? They almost always say, no, no, we're ready to go. But of course, they're the one that's got their hands on the steering wheel then, which means that they feel more in control. Whereas if I just say, all right, it's time to begin, let's get going they probably feel more like they're on a roller coaster that's about to go over a hill and there's not a lot that they can do about what's going to happen in that situation. So giving people a sense of control, saying to them, look, this is something we can do. Would you like us to do that? This is an option. How does that sit with you? Look, I suppose we're not able to help, but this is something that other people have found helpful, like going to a different organization for some assistance. Do you think that might be something that you would consider? Basically, we're wanting to give that sense of being in the driver's seat. Third is clarity. We want to be as specific as possible about what to expect next. If we say to a customer, look, thanks for lodging a complaint. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. They're probably still sitting there in a pretty worked up state. Well, when are you going to get back to me? Do you even care who's going to get back to me? Is, is there even any hope here? Whereas if we said, look, I've escalated that to my team leader, they're back in the office tomorrow morning, I've also put a reminder in my diary to go and speak with them about it as soon as I can catch them, this probably means that I can get back to you around 10 o'clock tomorrow. If I put that in the diary, does that time suit you if I give you a call and then I can talk to you about options and next steps? It's like, this is what's going to happen next, this is when, this is who will get back to you next or what you'll experience next and being as specific as possible tends to mean that the other person doesn't have that sense of uncertainty. Connection is the fourth thing that we can offer, a sense of understanding for validation and acknowledgement. Even if we disagree, we think the other person's exaggerating or overreacting, we can still summarize what they've told us and the more thoroughly we do that, the better the other person will feel understood. So instead of saying, I can understand that this has been disappointing, maybe saying something like, look, I, I just want to play back what you've told me. It, it sounds like for you, it's not just your experience with this latest product. You've actually had a number of frustrations with previous products. And nevertheless, you know, you still wanted to support Australian made businesses. So you're willing to give it a go. Um, it sounds like it just hasn't been what you've expected at all. From the word go, there's been problems. And even when you've tried to fix it, it doesn't sound like things have gotten any better. And you've called today, not just to organize a replacement, but it sounds like you're also wanting to give feedback because you're concerned about how this would impact other people in your community or just other customers that we have. Have I got that right? So summarizing and playing back those main parts and then confirming that you've heard it correctly often means that the person feels heard their shoulders might drop, they let out a bit of an exhale, and that's often the point when that rational bit of their brain starts to re-engage, and then you can shift the conversation towards options or next steps or where you need to go in the conversation, depending on the context. The final thing that people tend to crave is fairness. When we're giving reasons why we're saying no or asking someone to do something, 
it's generally best to keep reasons general and consistent. I can remember when I was calling uh, to make an appointment at my doctor's last week, uh, I said, look, are there any appointments available? And they explained that the doctor had been on leave and had just returned. So they didn't have any appointments for the next two weeks. Um, it's not urgent, so I, I didn't particularly mind. But they said to me, look, if you want to, you can call tomorrow morning. There are some appointments that are set aside for on-the-day calls. This was the next day. And I said, okay, so can you just put an appointment in the diary now? I mean, it's like it's 3 p.m. today. Do I really need to call back at 9 a.m. tomorrow? Um, it just doesn't make any sense. And the reason that they gave me was just the appointments are locked until then. They didn't enter into a debate about how silly this policy was. They didn't give me any context around why they do it because they want to prioritize emergencies for other patients that they have. I don't know. There's probably some reasons why that I'm not aware of. But if they went too much into explaining that, then before you know it, we would have been into a debate, especially with someone like me who, if things are not logical, I tend not to be able to let it go. One of the things that I'm working on in my own personal development. But them just saying that they're locked, there's nothing that we can do about it until tomorrow morning, I'm sorry. And then I said, oh, it just doesn't make any sense. They said, yeah, I, I can get where you're coming from. Unfortunately, those appointments are locked for now. But if you call tomorrow morning, we can book one in for you. Just keeping that reason general and consistent meant that I didn't have anything to argue against. One of the mistakes people sometimes make is that they get too much into the reasons why for a decision that's made or something that they've done, expecting the other person to understand where they're coming from. But of course, when people are in fight or flight mode, that's not something that's very likely to happen. So giving someone that sense of status, being important, giving them a sense of control, explaining expectations and establishing that clarity, giving a sense of connectedness, empathy, relatedness, and then building in fairness where possible, all mean that whatever the communication that you're doing, whether it's by email or in person or face-to-face, -face, or, or on the phone, I should say, then you're increasing the chances of the other person calming down. As a final point, though, what you say and what you do, the messages that you give, the actions that you take, are only a small piece of the puzzle here. It's possible that the person that you're dealing with has mental health issues, drug and alcohol. They've gone through a number of slightly traumatic experiences that day, other conflicts that they've been involved in. They might be a high conflict personality and this is just the way that they've been conditioned to operate in the world. When we use de-escalation tools effectively, the way I often think about it is that we're increasing the chances of the other person coming down or helping them to do it quicker. What we can't do is guarantee that they're calm. So at some point, if the person doesn't calm down, you might need to shift. And instead of the focus being on de-escalation, there's a point where it needs to be on assertiveness. I'm not going to continue this conversation. I've explained these two options. Once you've had a chance to think about it, let us know and we can you know, get things organized. There's a point where we do need to just say, um, enough is enough for whatever reason. At the moment, this isn't the right time to continue this and then managing that conversation from there. And I suppose that might not be a bad topic for next podcast if we focus episode four on assertiveness skills, holding on to boundaries. I wonder if that's something that would be helpful for you. If you'd be willing to give feedback, you can email podcast at simongood.com. 
to support the podcast, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go to iTunes or Spotify and give us a good review if the podcast has been helpful for you. Um, Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. If you've got a question or a situation that you would like me to address in the podcast, please send it through. I'd be more than happy to take on board different scenarios or case studies or just recurring issues that you've come across and maybe give a little bit of insight and maybe some different ways of thinking about the situation or some additional tools that you might be able to incorporate. All the best in your conflict situations. Bye for now.